0: Now, some of us here saw the new Bond film last week. Now, don't worry, no spoilers here. Uh, but you will know, whether you're a fan or not, that every Bond film has its own theme song. Uh, some of you will remember Shirley Bassey singing Diamonds Are Forever or Goldfinger. Uh, a few of us here have a friend in Dundee who uh, used to like to dress up as Shirley Bassey. And call her she called herself Burley Shassy. And uh, as she sang, Diamonds Are Forever and gold Goldfinger. Uh, but in the last Bond film, not this most recent one, but the, the previous one called Spectre, Sam Smith sings the theme song. And that is quite difficult to say. Sam Smith sings the theme song. You should try saying that quickly. Sam Smith sings the theme song. And the song is called The Writings on the Wall. The Writings on the Wall. And if you, if you prefer an older reference, Stevie Wonder's song, Superstition. Superstition, the first line's very superstitious, the writings on the wall. The writings on the wall. And that phrase, the writings on the wall, comes straight from Daniel 5. I'm not sure whether Sam Smith knows that or not. Um, but that's where it comes from, because it's entered into the English language. And it's an expression that we use when you see a business or a company that's about to fail, a politician whose career is about to come to an end, or a football team that's due to be relegated. The expression, the writings on the wall, or in fact, your days are numbered. That's another expression in English coming from this chapter. The writings on the wall, your days are numbered. These expressions carry the sense of finality. Something is coming to an end. But more than that, they carry the sense of Inevitability. In other words, unavoidable. It's unavoidable. The end which is coming is going to happen. The collapse of the company, the end of the politician's career, the relegation of the football team. It's going to happen. Why? Because the writing's on the wall, their days are numbered, it's a verdict that's been passed, it's a judgment that's been made, it's a declaration that time is up. And that is what we see in Daniel chapter 5. We see a hand sent from god or sent by god to deliver a message from god a hand sent by god to deliver a message from god a message which declares the verdict the divine verdict the judgment of god the judgment of god on Belshazzar, the blasphemer of god now before we dive into the story itself one thing the passage itself flags up and invites us to do, is to compare Belshazzar with Nebuchadnezzar. And that is why these two stories are placed side by side in the book of Daniel. Why chapter 5 follows chapter 4? Because the events don't take place immediately after Nebuchadnezzar. He's been dead 23, 24 years. The year is now 539 BC, and Daniel is 81 or 82 or 83. So the story here is deliberately laid beside chapter 4 to warn us, to warn us, encourage us, yes, but also to warn us in the clearest possible terms what we must do if we are to be reconciled to God and not rejected by him. So then let's look at the passage. we going to look at it in four sections. Firstly, the first four verses, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, and I've called this Belshazzar's Blasphemous Banquet. Belshazzar's Blasphemous Banquet. Chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Here in chapter 5, verse 1, Belshazzar made, literally it's the same word, made a great feast, a great banquet. Now, a little bit of historical background again. We know from other sources that the Persian army had defeated the Babylonian army in a battle two days before this, in a place 50 miles from Babylon. So, 50 miles away, what's that about King Yusi? No, Newton Moore from here, from Inverness. The Babylonian army had been defeated two days before this feast took place. So, here is Belshazzar in the capital city of Babylon, holding a great feast while the Persian army are just over the horizon. Now, why did he do this? Was it a case of the band playing on after the iceberg hit the Titanic and people continuing to party because they thought the ship was unsinkable? Did Belshazzar think the great citadel, and it was a mighty citadel, did he think it was secure, come what may, and that no army could cross the mighty Euphrates? the mighty river Euphrates, to get to the royal stronghold. At any rate, it suggests a leader who was either foolish or ignorant or incompetent, or maybe all three, foolish, ignorant and incompetent. The Greek historian Xenophon, from the 4th and 5th century BC, the Greek historian tells us that Belshazzar was a riotous, indulgent, cruel and godless young man. Now, he's a Greek pagan historian saying that. A riotous, indulgent, cruel, and godless young man. Well, what about his offense against the God of heaven, the God of Daniel, the God of Israel? Well, Belshazzar does two things, doesn't he? Firstly, he gives an order to bring out the goblets, the special cups that were used in the worship of Yahweh in the temple in Jerusalem. He gives an order for these goblets that nebuchadnezzar had brought from the temple in jerusalem to bring them out but do you remember what did nebuchadnezzar do with these goblets he had put them into the temple yes of his own gods but he did that because he recognized them as sacred vessels even even though he did not recognize at that time the god to whom they were dedicated but he knew they were sacred vessels And what Belshazzar did with these vessels, with these goblets, was not only a gross offence to Jews and to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, it also went against every sensibility and custom of the East, of the Orient, to use these holy things in this way. That's why Xenophon calls him godless. But the other thing he does... He compounds his sacrilege and blasphemy by using these dedicated items to praise the gods. Do you see that in verse 4? To praise the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, of iron and wood and stone. And here here we see the folly and the madness of idolatry. Here he is using cups made from silver and gold, bowing down before gods and idols, made out of the very same material that they're using to drink from. That's the folly and the madness of idolatry. Now, I'm not going to apply this a section today in terms of idolatry. We do that quite often, thinking of modern idols. But I want to think of ways in which we can blaspheme God, which means to dishonor, bring disgrace in the name of God, how we can blaspheme God by using the things of God to dishonor the name of God. How we can blaspheme God by using the things of God to dishonor the name of God. As one commentator puts it, to spit in the eye of God. For that is what Belshazzar is doing. Well, one way in which we can use the things of God to dishonor God and blaspheme against him is to take the Bible, the word of God, and twist it and use it for our own purposes for our own idolatrous purposes, for the worship of self and the glory of self or something else other than the worship and glory of God. And that can happen and I have seen it happen when a Bible is paraded into a church service with pomp and ceremony and then is ignored or a message is preached from it that denies the reality of heaven and hell and denies the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and man. That is spitting in the face of God. It happens when the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, are used to deny the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. When the finished work of Christ is reenacted or represented in the Mass. Or when we think that the grace of God needs to be topped up by our own efforts to win. Us, our salvation. That is blasphemous. That is spitting in the face of God and in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as surely as he was spat in the face, literally when he was here on the face of earth. Well, be warned, as the late James Philip has said, I would rather play with an atomic bomb than trifle with the gospel of Jesus Christ because God is not mocked. God is not mocked sooner or later God will take action to vindicate the honor of his name and the honor of his son the Lord Jesus Christ he is God most high and God most holy and here in Daniel 5 the high and the holy God acts and acts suddenly and see how things can change in an instant when Aslan is on the move just as they did with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 verse 31 do you remember it was just as Nebuchadnezzar was boasting about what he had accomplished by his mighty power and the glory of his majesty, it's even while he was boasting that a voice came from heaven. And here in chapter 5, it's in the midst of this drunken revelry and blasphemy. Well, it's not a voice, but a hand, a hand from heaven. And that's our second section, verses 5 to 9, the hand of God. Belshazzar's blasphemous banquet is brought to a sudden and abrupt end by the hand of God, verses 5 to 9. Suddenly, verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appear and begin to write on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand. Why was it near the lampstand? So that people could see it. It was easily visible. And interestingly, we know from archaeology, from the remains of the Babylonian ruins, that the walls of the palace were coated with a white plaster made from gypsum, which would make the, the writing very visible. Good for writing on. Now imagine you were there. Imagine you were there at that, say it was a wedding reception that was getting a bit out of hand, you know, and suddenly a disembodied hand appeared to write on the wall. And you can imagine, it doesn't tell us this in the text, you can imagine the cup falling from Belshazzar's hand. As his legs go weak and his knees begin to knock. Have you ever been so scared that your knees begin to knock? It's terrifying. And he turns, we're told, his face turned pale, a deathly pale. You see, there is no question about the supernatural nature of what is going on. This is not some episode from Scooby-Doo when you will eventually see someone with a projector and a screen doing something to trick you. This is something out of the ordinary. Writing a message on the wall from the royal palace. But what does it mean? What can it mean? It's interesting, isn't it, that Belshazzar, from his reaction, seems to know that it's not good news. But nobody knows. Everyone is baffled. End of verse 9. No one can tell him what it means. And he becomes even more terrified in verse 9. And his face grew even more pale. It will take more than a shot of whiskey to steady his nerves. We move on to the third section then, verses 10 to 17, the servant of God. The queen mother hears the uproar, and it's most likely it's the queen mother because the queen mother is a person of uh, importance, one of the few women to have importance in the royal court. She can enter the king's presence without being summoned. We also know that uh, Belshazzar's wives were already present, at the feast so it's likely that his wife the queen was already there and we also know that this lady knows about Daniel she could even have been Nebuchadnezzar's widow so the queen mother hears the uproars and do you see how how she is wiser than Belshazzar oh don't be alarmed don't look so pale verse 10 there's even a hint of rebuke there why are you so alarmed why are you so pale don't you know there's a man in your kingdom who is the spirit of the holy gods in him in the time of your father nebuchadnezzar he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods the text prompts us to ask what have you done with him Belshazzar why don't you know about him Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, send for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. As I say, Daniel is an old man in his early 80s, but it is a mark of Belshazzar's folly that he does not know about him. And then look in verse 13 how Belshazzar addresses him. Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? Are you the Jewish refugee? And there's a contrast here too with chapter 4. You when Daniel came before Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 verse 9. Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel, Belteshazzar, that was Daniel's other name, chief of the magicians, I know, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Nebuchadnezzar says, I know. What does Belshazzar say? I have heard. Verse 14 and verse 16. I have heard, not I know. Daniel says, I will I will interpret the reading for you, but you can keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. I'm doing this. I will interpret the writing for the king, but not because you're offering me rewards, but because I'm here to pass on the message from God. Notice again, here is the exile from Judah. What encouragement this is for God's beleaguered people in any age the man who knows God, the person, the woman, the child who knows God is always wiser than those who don't. Is always wiser than those who don't. And young people and all of us, if you know God and having a living relationship with him through Jesus Christ, you are wiser than Professor Richard Dawkins who doesn't. It doesn't matter if you never passed an exam in your life. You're wiser. And that wisdom will tell in the end. Because in this last section, from verse 18 to 31, we see the judgment of God. The judgment of God, verse 18 to 31. Now, Daniel does not tell Belshazzar the meaning of the dream straight away. What he does tell him is something Belshazzar already knew, something he had heard of but had dismissed. Daniel tells him how God had humbled his father, Nebuchadnezzar, until, verse 21, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. It was God who had given Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And when he tried to bring the glory to himself, he was driven away, given the mind of an animal, until, until, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign. Then here is the killer punch in Daniel's prophetic message. It's like the prophetic rebuke. It's like the the Nathan to David, isn't it? Here is the prophetic rebuke. But you, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up, you have lifted up your heart against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the Lord's temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from it. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life, literally your breath, And all your ways, not just some of your ways, all your ways, you did not honor him, though you knew all this. You knew this, Belshazzar. It was told to you. You should have listened and learned and repented like Nebuchadnezzar, whom God lifted up and restored when he lifted his eyes to heaven and praised the Most High. But no, you have not humbled yourself, Belshazzar. You have rejected the way of repentance and humility, and therefore God has rejected you. Your days are numbered. You have been weighed in the balances on God's scales, and you have been found wanting. Your kingdom is lost, divided, and given to the Medes and Persians. This is God's verdict, God's declaration, God's judgment. And later that very same night, the Persian army attacked the city of Babylon. And do you know how they got in? Because we learn this from other sources again. They diverted the river Euphrates. They diverted the river Euphrates, lowered the level of the river so that the army could cross the river, actually come up the riverbed to enter the city under the cover of darkness. And again, the Greek historians, these are from 3rd, 4th, 5th century B.C. Historians, Xenophon and Herodotus tell us that Babylon was taken in a surprise attack by the Persians while the Babylonians were reveling and dancing. What a tragedy to be weighed in the scales and found wanting by God. To have our lives taken from us by God, to be condemned by God all because we have not acted on what we have known, have not honored the God who holds in his hands our life, our breath, and all our ways, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might be thinking here today, well, I'm not Belshazzar. I've, n- I've never taken any sacred item and held a riotous party and praised the gods of gold and silver. Well, hear this again from The Reverend James Philip in his commentary, men and women are not lost because they are gigantic sinners. You might be thinking, I'm not a gigantic sinner like Belshazzar. Well, men and women are not lost because they are gigantic sinners. They do not perish because of the enormity of their sins. There is a savior from gigantic, enormous sins. They go to hell because they resist God. In the end, finally, they resist God and his claim on their lives. That's why men and women perish, because they resist God and his claim on their lives. So let me ask you, let me ask you in love today, let me warn you as well from the word of God. Are you resisting God and his claim on your life? Well, be warned. Be warned. God tells us in Genesis 6 that his spirit will not strive with man forever. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Why did he weep over Jerusalem? He said, if you, even you, only knew on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. It's too late. You see, the door of opportunity does not remain open forever. If you continually harden your heart against God if you continually harden your heart against the promptings of the Spirit, if you continually harden your heart and resist the gospel, you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you cut off from yourself any chance of salvation and forgiveness. Jesus Christ has died for your sins. Friends, if you've not yet humbled yourself to accept that. What can I say? I plead with you. I plead with you. Don't don't do what Belshazzar did. There is only one thing to do. There's only one person who can tip the scales in our favor as sinners before a holy and wrathful God. And that person is Jesus Christ. None other than God himself in human form come to save us from the judgment and wrath of God. Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins. And I don't have to paraphrase Paul very much to say from Colossians 2 verse 14. That Jesus rubbed out the writing on the wall that was against us and condemned us. In fact, the King James Version of that verse, Colossians 2.14, talks about the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us. And Jesus has come to rub that out, to rub out everything that condemns us. He's taken it and nailed it to the cross forever. The written charge against us has been cancelled, erased, removed, because Jesus took the charge upon himself. The accusation, the blame, the condemnation, the wrath that you and I deserve. The righteous crucified for the unrighteous to bring to bring us to God, to reconcile us to God. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has taken away the sin of the world. It is Jesus alone who can save us from the judgment to come. And I I do plead with you, I beg with you to bow before him, to humble yourselves as Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and was humbled by God. Lift your eyes to the one whose throne is in heaven until we find mercy from him in the person of Jesus Christ. Bow with your life before the one who holds your life and your breath. And all your ways in his hands. Welcome Jesus as your saviour and Lord. He is calling you. He is calling you to come. To come. That we might be reconciled to God. By the mercy and grace of God. Through Jesus Christ the son of God. Don't be a fool. Don't be like Belshazzar. Who thought he knew. Who though he knew all this. Did nothing about it. Now is the day of salvation. Instead, be like Nebuchadnezzar. Because as someone has written, life is the season God has given. This life is the season God has given to fly from hell and rise to heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who holds in your hands our life, our breath, and all our ways. Forgive us, Father, our foolishness for when we think it otherwise. And Father, we know that as sinners we are all found wanting when we are measured in the scales of your holiness and righteousness and justice. And yet, Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to tip the scales in our favor, And to all who believe in him, to all who receive him as Saviour and Lord, there is mercy and grace abounding even to the chief of sinners. Oh, Father, may none of us in this room ever be guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, have mercy upon us. Help us, Lord, not to harden our hearts against the call of the gospel, the call of Jesus and the gospel. But may you, by your sovereign spirit, soften our hearts, make our ways, make our knees weak, not with alcohol, but Father, with awe, and worship. That along with Thomas we confess Jesus as my Lord and my God. Amen.